International observers were shocked when President Trump met with North Korea Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un in June 2018. But amid the spectacle of these two leaders putting aside their infamous barbs and insults, there was another shock awaiting the public. President Trump announced that joint military exercises with South Korea would be postponed on account of their costliness and their unnecessarily provocative character. This had not been consulted with South Korea beforehand. That was 2018, when people thought perhaps a peace treaty with North Korea was just around the corner. Two years on, there is no treaty. North Korea has not budged on its nuclear weapons arsenal, and in fact Pyongyang is beginning to act more provocatively. And yet the old joint military exercises between South Korea and the United States have not resumed. Would the forces be ready in case there is a conflict? This is the question that our guest, Professor Terence Rorick, seeks to answer today. He is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and recently authored a paper for KAI titled ROK U.S. Exercises and Denuclearizing North Korea, Diplomacy or Readiness. You can find the link to this paper in the description of this episode. The episode today is from a web discussion between Professor Rorig and KAI's Director of Academic Affairs, Kyle Ferrier. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan. Social distancing in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. I know for most of us, COVID-19 has dominated much of our personal and professional lives these past few weeks, but Pyongyang has made it clear that it will not be forgotten. Between the increased North Korea missile launches and the rumor mill that has run rampant this week about Kim Jong-un's health, there is just as much reason as there ever was to critically think about how we approach Pyongyang. And that's why we're so happy to have with us today Terry Rorig, a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, to talk with us about the intersection of security in the U.S. Rock Alliance and diplomacy with North Korea and sort of finding that right balance between the two. Terry literally co-wrote the book on the U.S.-Korea Alliance in 2018 and also writes on North Korea's nuclear weapons program, human rights, and issues pertaining to the Northern Limit Line. Uh, the maritime border between the two Koreas. So without any further delay, I'll now turn things over to Terry. Thank you very much, Kyle. And, and let me start first by thanking Ambassador Stevens and Kyle and everyone at KEIA for this opportunity. So it all starts in June of 2018 after the U.S. and North Korea conclude the summit in Singapore. President Trump goes and gives a press conference after those events. And in that press conference announces that we will stop the war games because they are costly and they are provocative. Some certainly cheered the announcement as a move to move to push diplomacy and to support diplomacy. Others criticized it as a foolish, ill-advised move, certainly in how it was done, but also what was done. But also for the sake of my paper, the question about what impact changing and or suspending the exercise structure would have on military readiness. How did the alterations to the exercises affect readiness? And was any associated risk that may have been generated by changing or suspending or altering the exercises worth the risk for the possible gains it would accrue to support diplomacy? Let me begin by talking about what the purpose of the exercises are in the Korean theater. And I think there are three important reasons for the continued exercises in Korea. 
First of all, it is crucial to ensure that both the United States and South Korea and together can conduct combined combat operations to be able to defend South Korea. U.S. and South Korean forces have long been organized under a simple mantra of fight tonight. And to be able to do that, to be able to coordinate, that requires exercises and regular intensive training that is part of that. The Korean theater, though, has some difficult challenges that come along with maintaining that element of military readiness. First of all, U.S. military personnel, most are rotated to Korea on one-year rotations. So they spend their first four to six months becoming acclimated to the assignment and to the area, then have only about six months or perhaps even less remaining to be able to continue what they do. Then the military personnel are supported by reservists who come in for short periods of time. These reservists often don't have a lot of experience in Korea and again spend far shorter time in Korea to be able to support and conduct their assignments. Then lastly, South Korean military personnel are also rotating during all of this. And so what you have created here is a complex, regularly shifting personnel matrix that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of parts that don't necessarily stay in place for very long. To make sure this all works requires regular, extensive exercising to ensure the proficiency of individuals, of individual units, but then also how the U.S. and South Korean forces can all work together. In addition, another challenge is that you have two allies who have different cultures and different languages. And so being able to make that work requires regular combined exercises. A crucial part of the exercise program is to be able to build trust and understanding among the various sides. And in a number of cases, that is really at a sort of a person-to-person -person level. And so exercises ensure that those kinds of relationships, again, even at the person-to-person -person level, but at larger levels as well, are built and doing exercises are a central part of being able to do that. A second piece to the exercises and a purpose is the deterrence signal it sends to North Korea. By doing the exercises, by demonstrating alliance coordination and combat capability, it sends a very significant message to North Korea. Exercises are an important measure to North Korea to help demonstrate a robust and proficient alliance that can continue to maintain a deterrence posture in regards to North Korea. Lastly, the exercises also send an important signal to South Korea as a measure of assurance to South Korea as a valued ally. The exercises and the alliance is an important signal of solidarity and the credibility of the alliance. And the exercises again help to reassure that posture. I would also maintain that the recipient of those signals are not only South Korea, it is also Japan. As these two alliances, while they are not formally linked, they have long been linked informally. 
And so Japan watches closely what happens in Korea and vice versa. And the degree to which the United States demonstrates a robust, solid security commitment, that is important and watched very closely by Japan as well. Were the changes to the exercises, did they produce or have an associated risk that was acceptable and tolerable for the sake of supporting um, the diplomatic process that had been underway? First of all, to be absolutely sure, training did continue even though the exercises were altered. Some again were suspended, but a lot of the training continued in different forms, in smaller scale. And so it wasn't about no training going on at all. Extensive training individually, unilaterally, as well as some combined exercises continued to go on. However, with that said, because of the training matrix that I mentioned earlier and the frequent rotations, including, as was pointed out to me, of the flag officers who are in the leadership positions that are there for one or two years, that there was a danger that you would lose the corporate knowledge that was part of the experience of exercising and passing on those sorts of lessons. And that the ability to pass on lessons learned to those who succeeded them was put in jeopardy, at least in the short term, since the exercise routine was not the same and was shortened. And some things just simply because of the lack of large scale exercises were not done in quite the same way. One other interesting point was raised to me and was put in the context of the concept of normalization of deviance, where you have perhaps an incremental relaxation of standards. In this regard, the standards that are achieved by being able to train. And that this relaxation of standards happens until you have produced essentially an inadequate new standard that becomes the norm. So when you put all of these things together, I think it is clear that there has been some implication to training. Certainly there can be arguments about how much, and it's difficult to put a precise number on that, but it seems clear that readiness and some aspects of the training regime deteriorated as a result of the changes in exercises. But while the debate over the wisdom of altering exercises often referenced readiness, I think the other side of that argument really was more about the messaging piece to this and the second aspect of the assessment to my question. And it was the signal that these changes to the exercises sent to North Korea. I touched on this just a little bit at the start, and that was the notion that one side argued that changing the exercises, certainly suspending them, was foolish. On the other side, though, of course, proponents argued that this was a crucial measure to support diplomacy, that it helped reduce tensions, it helped lessen some of North Korea's security concerns because they regularly complain about the exercises and how they are a prelude to a possible invasion. And that these were just simply very important as a gesture of good faith on the United States and South Korea's part at this early stage in the negotiation process to be able to, again, help provide momentum for this process 
to continue going? Was the effect on military readiness and the associated risk that came along with that, was that acceptable, was it tolerable in the short term to support the diplomatic process? Even if the prospects for success were low and that there was an impact on military readiness, I would argue that the associated short-term impact on military readiness was tolerable and was worth the effort and acceptable to be able to support diplomacy at this particular point in the process for a couple of reasons. First of all, the United States and South Korean militaries, again, still trained extensively. In the short term, the military capability did not suffer that much in regards to readiness from what the indicators seem to be. But also the measure of whether it was tolerable is contingent on what the security environment was at that particular point. And we were seeing tension levels decreasing significantly from 2017 and 2016. The summits were bringing tension levels down. We also had in September of 2018, the conclusion of the North-South Comprehensive Military Agreement, which further reduced military and political tensions. And lastly, I think it was very unlikely that North Korea would challenge the alliance in any sort of significant way with any sort of major combat operations. When you look at readiness, you have to ask the question, readiness to do what? And in this particular case, the training is very clearly focused on major combat operations in many respects on the Korean Peninsula. But the likelihood of that happening in the short term was very low. And so therefore the accompanying risk was tolerable and acceptable. But now the next question that arises is how long can you continue this sort of altered exercise schedule? And do you get to some point at which down the road, the risk does become considerable and there has to be reconsideration for resuming the previous exercise schedule or something else from what we have currently. The number that I often heard in the interviews that I conducted was that you could go two to three years, maybe a little more, before you had significant damage to readiness and that risk would go up significantly after that particular point. So when you look at the clock, if you will, if you start the clock at the fall of 2018, we had maybe a year, year and a half to go before we hit that two to three year marker. Is it going to be time to reconsider the exercise framework that is in place? Perhaps, but yet also the timeline may depend on what the security environment is, and it may depend on what the process and progress is on diplomacy. I think it's important to remember that the size and the details of exercises have always been adjustable throughout the history of the Alliance. And so they can be ratcheted up, they can be ratcheted back, different assets, different missions can be part of the exercises. These things can be adjusted depending on the circumstances. And so let me conclude by saying that in the next year or two, there are going to have to be some reassessments and some decisions made 
about where the exercises go and to see whether this current process and structure is the one that best fits the security environment and the process for the place we are at in regards to diplomacy and security. And so now I'll turn things over to a slew of questions coming in, and I'll try and combine them where possible. Our first one comes from Liz Shim. She asks, how prepared are the U.S. and South Korea forces in the event of a sudden change in North Korea? And is China in better position to intervene in North Korea if there is a crisis of governance in Pyongyang? The short answer is it's not entirely clear. There have been some reports that there is some planning um, that has been done. I'm not sure that enough has been done in that regard. We could set up planning based on any number of different scenarios and not necessarily get that correct. If there is truly something wrong with Kim Jong-un's health and he passes away or, or there is some sort of aspect of that, that is an internal political issue. I don't think the United States should or can necessarily intervene in that. That's going to have to be something that North Korea sorts out. Certainly we watch very closely in that regard and, and see what the warning signs may be depending on the degree to which that evolves into a chaotic situation. But I think certainly this is not the first transition we have had in the Kim family and we did not intervene in the other two either. This is going to be something that North Korea will have to sort out. But if something really starts to go badly, seriously, and there is a need to intervene, I think it is very important that the United States, China, and South Korea have had discussions about this. Because if we decide to act, if all of us decide to act, there is an awful lot of room to get in each other's way. And I think that could have some very, very serious consequences. Kim Dong-hyun from VOA Korean Service says, I was wondering how COVID-19 would impact joint exercises as well as OPCON transition, as that is directly related with postponement of joint exercises. The COVID-19, there certainly have been concerns among U.S. forces as well as South Korean forces in regards to making sure that the virus is contained and does not damage readiness. The reports that I have seen indicate that there have been some very strong proactive measures taken and that that has been a good story so far, that, that they have been successful in that and so that it has not necessarily had any major impact on readiness, at least at this particular point, as far as I can see in the reporting that's been coming out of South Korea in regards to the military. Emma Chandler-Avery at CRS is asking, how does the lapse in the SMA impact readiness? There's a lot of things to consider, including the furloughed workers of face, the possible further reduction in exercises, and diminished trust in the alliance more broadly. I think we need to do a better job of treating our allies. We say in all of our strategic documents, the importance of allies for the U.S. security position, and yet how these SMA talks have evolved with South Korea, I think are very important. They undercut the confidence in the alliance among South Koreans. That has an effect on readiness. It may be less on sort of the specific exercise training side to that, but it certainly undercuts a good deal 
of the political foundations to the alliance. And if this continues on, it could add more to that and could make that even worse in regards to the effect on the alliance. And, and I'm concerned about that. I think this is something that we need to do a better job in regards to alliance management, not only with South Korea, but I think also Japan, again, is watching these events very closely as their SMA is up next, I believe, next year. And so I share those concerns about what this means for the alliance. Terry, we got a couple more questions to get to. I'll give you them separately. The first one is from Ben Moncier. He asks, under the assumption that North Korea will not denuclearize and will have a secure second strike capability, how does that affect U.S. force posture uh, that has been more structured to deter conventional threats on the peninsula? I think that's a really important question because what is the alternative if North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear capability? then I think, to phrase it bluntly, we have to learn how to live with a nuclear North Korea. And that is going to mean that we have to continue to buttress our posture to deter a nuclear North Korea now in the case of that particular eventuality. I am not necessarily one who feels that the answer is that we have to then deploy tactical nuclear weapons to South Korea, that it is about bolstering U.S. nuclear weapons in the theater. Certainly some South Koreans argue that there's a need for South Korea to develop its own nuclear weapons. I am much more sanguine that even with a nuclear North Korea, North Korea can continue to be deterred at the strategic level as we have done for the last 60 plus years and that it's not going to necessarily require a major change in the U.S. force posture. I think we have to, and, and I'm not sure we have really done this as clearly as we need to, but to outline to North Korea some clear red lines here. First of all, about proliferation. I think for the last several years now, with the focus on the long-range ICBM and the nuclear capability with that, we have lost what had been our earlier chief concern, and that is North Korea proliferating nuclear materials, nuclear technology to other states. I think we have to return to that as a central focus of U.S. policy and make that clear in no uncertain terms to North Korea. And then we also have to include that, that North Korea, and, and to emphasize that if those weapons are ever used, the result will be disastrous to the North Korean regime. I think we have to emphasize that in much greater detail than we necessarily have. And again, I am not convinced that we have to do anything that is that much more different than what we are doing currently to be able to deter North Korea. The bigger concern, in my view, is perhaps North Korea moving to feel more confident in lower level types of actions or provocations because it feels it now has the ultimate sort of backstop with nuclear weapons. I think we have to watch that. I'm not convinced North Korea has or will go down that road, but I, that's much more concerning to me than necessarily North Korea using any sort of offensive nuclear strikes or offensive nuclear coercion. 
I think North Korea can be deterred, and that can be something that does not require a major change in the U.S. force posture in East Asia. So we have, we're almost out of time, but I think that, I think that this last question is really important. It comes from Mark Tokola, KEI's vice president. He asks, will it be possible to resume exercises without raising tension? And is there any reason to believe that South Korea would want to resume exercises? This is a great point to clarify and to end on, because again, I can't emphasize enough that exercises have been going on extensively. But what has happened is some of the exercises have been scaled back to be smaller. The exercises have been driven down to more the unit level. There have also still been combined exercises that have been part of this, but just not as large. You know, there still has been a good deal of training and readiness that is there. But are some things lost? Again, my sense from the interviews is that there are things that are concerning, particularly as the time continues beyond this two to three year marker that will need to be revisited. But I think that's a crucial question, Mark, because whenever you conduct exercises, again, you know, how you do them, what you do, you can do exercises that are defensive, that are careful, that are carefully constructed, but you can also do exercises that are overly provocative. And so I think there has to be care taken to carefully craft your exercises to be able to, certainly on the readiness side, ensure that readiness, but on the messaging side, to think about how that needs to be done. And perhaps there is more about doing that that needs to be thought about in relation to your question mark. And we'll see in the years ahead how this exercise structure gets revisited and done differently, perhaps based on the security environment. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Professor Terence Rorick and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find a link to Professor Rorick's paper, ROK U.S. Exercises and Denuclearizing North Korea, Diplomacy or Readiness, in the description of this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming live discussions. We have one on Tuesday, May 19th with KAI non-resident fellow Andre Abrahimian on how we might be able to better understand developments in North Korea. And we have another event on Thursday, May 21st with former U.S. Ambassador to Seoul Mark Lippert on the implications of ESPN broadcasting Korean baseball in the United States. RSVPs for both of these events can be found in the description of this episode. Hope to see you there. <laughs>